Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's How a lovely day. It's a lovely day where I am. And it it's a lovely, be a lovely day, day, day where people hear this, but it's a lovely day right now. God, you appreciate it, don't you, after yesterday? Oh, you, Lord. You really appreciate dark it. and rain. It's fabulous. Yeah, I went for a walk around the block first thing, and I was in such a good mood. And I passed this lady walking her tiny dog. And, uh, you know, give her a wide berth, COVID berth, so forth, you know. <laughs> uh, but also, at the same time, you want to be polite, don't you? you yeah. Know. And, good morning, good morning. I said, it's a lovely morning, isn't it? And as I went past, she said, yes, but the sun's lower in the sky. I thought, oh, God, oh, don't no. say that to me. That's, that's What's so the British. Point? It's so, that's, that's so British. Yeah, we've got so glass half we're, empty. We've got six months of this. <laughs> we've got six months of this ahead. Oh dear, oh dear. It's that I think you'll find. I you think know, you'll find that sing-song tone in the voice. Yes, oh dear, yes, dear. It's, it's finger a, wagging. Nice. Oh, well, there we are. She's Good rained way. on your parade. Yes, yeah, she has. Okay. Hey, all right. Stack one game. Stack one. Stack one game. All right. Okay. Okay. Go on. British. British TV music shows, pop uh, and rock, okay, <laughs> which always had <laughs> tough names. All of these from the last 30 years, some of them very short-lived, uh, five of them real, one of them a ringer invented by me. Okay? okay, go on. Okay, six TV music shows in the UK. Shaker Maker, Pop World, All Right Now, Seven Ages of Rock. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> and the noise. Oh, good right. God! I'll read those runners and runners again. Shake can I just can I just say that all uniformly terrible names? They are terrible. They are awful. <laughs> Every <laughs> single one, even the one you made up yourself. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. So, Shaker Maker, Pop World, all right now. Seven Ages of Rock. Check it out. The noise. You can imagine the excitement. People sitting I've, around a table, cooking up one of those. Go. That's it. We'll go with it. 
I found myself, first of all, thinking Shaker Maker had to be made up. And then I, as I thought about it for a second, I thought, no, it might not be. I'm going to go Seven Ages of Rock. Seven Ages of Rock. Okay. No, Seven Ages. <laughs> that was real. Wasn't seven it? Ages of Rock is real. I'm Kill afraid Kevin. it's real. Series from 2007 wow. uh, on BBC Two. All Right Now was also real. It was a Time T television programme in, uh, in, yes, in 1979. Yeah. Remember, you know that one probably. I think so. Yeah. Check It Out is also real. What a great name. Check It Out. Time T's again. Uh, the Noise was presented by Andy Peters in 1996. Of course it uh, was. All right, now, Seven Ages Rock real. And no, the one I made up was Shaker Maker, actually. Which oh, is right. sounding like one of those things that would have been a brilliant idea at the time, just for a brief moment. Yeah, for a split second. A kind of, you know, Brit pop kind of classic. And it would have been all over after, to, you know, one series. You but see, what they, what they would have done, what they should have done, really, is done a live programme called Live Forever, shouldn't they? At the height of... Uh, at the height of Britpop, as it lived forever. Oh, very live forever. Good. Oh, yeah, you see, I could have had a career in television. Good. Anyway. Wasted. Okay. Coming back at you. Give me yours. Yeah, yeah. I've only got five. Yep. Oh, you, you've extended it to six. I've only got Go five. On. And this is inspired by the quiz we had on Friday night. Okay. Uh, for We have a quiz every Friday evening around at six o'clock for our Patreon supporters, where uh, I give people about ten clues to the identity of a musical artiste, and they have to guess who the artiste is from the obscure clues. And uh, the answer to Friday's was Frank Zappa. We were talking about Frank Zappa, weren't we? We were. Uh, what a great and, and fascinating subject he is. And one of the clues was the, the kind of mad titles that Frank Zappa gives his LPs. So what I've got here are five Frank Zappa LPs, okay, titles, one of which is made up, okay? Are That's ready? good. Okay. That's good. I'm not going to, I know a bit of Frank Zappa. But I'm I know not gonna, you, I'm I know you, know, I, but you may not know the further reaches of Frank Zappa. No, no, I probably They're all album lot. titles, right? They're okay. all, all album titles. Okay. okay. Ship arriving too late to save a drowning witch. Yep. Come on, punky, get funky. You are what you is. Hang on a sec. Come on, punky, get funky, is it? Yeah. Yep. You are yeah. what you is. Yeah. Jazz from hell. Yeah. And Zoot Allures. Uh, yeah. Okay. okay. Well, look, Zoot Allures and Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning, which I'm fairly sure are real. Uh, okay. I think. Am I, am I wrong already? No, no, go no, no. Okay. So we got Jazz from Hell, You Are What You Is, and Come On Punky, Get Funky. Is that right? Yep. Those are great. You are what you is sounds like, that sounds like Zappa. Jazz from Hell is, I, I would have thought precisely the kind of thing that he'd, uh, that he'd come up with, actually. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to go for Come On Punky, Get Funky, but I may, I may be miles off. You're right. Oh, come no, on, no! Come On Punky, Get Funky is a Frank Zappa bootleg. Oh, is so, it? So it's titled by somebody else. Oh, that's attempt, good. Attempting to emulate Frank Zappa. So I didn't make it up myself. It's a Frank that's Zappa bootleg. So they, what an endlessly fascinating story Frank Zappa is, isn't it? Is, uh, yeah, the thing about Frank Zappa is I never get fed up of reading about him. I, I, I can soon get tired of Probably listening to him. Probably get tired of listening to him. There aren't that many good records. It's true. Uh, but I can. But I love that. It's always interesting. It's my always favorite story is that he wanted to be for his fifteenth. It was his fifteenth birthday. He wanted as a present. He wanted a telephone call to France to talk to Edgar Varese. 
He his did. favorite avant-garde. He wanted, he, he wanted the $5, $5 to pay for the long-distance phone call. That's an amazing and precocious present. Yeah, it? absolutely. You and he did say it. He and did. did. Very good. Anyway, so, I, got up the, I got up this morning to read the thing yeah. in the New York Times. Headline is, how much is an album worth in 2020? maybe nothing. And it's it's just based on, it's kind of an interesting story of this this rapper, uh, Rap Ferreira, kind of, you know, marginal hip-hop artiste, but he's got a following. And he's putting out his own records. And he decided, how how is he going to price the record? That was his dilemma, you know, because that's that's in his gift. It's not a record company. Nobody else decides what we can charge. And this has uh, been the this been the thing since pretty much since in rainbows with with Radiohead, wasn't it? Who started the whole honesty box thing and whatever it was, two thousand and seven, wasn't it? And uh, pay whatever you want, but he puts a price on it, doesn't he? Well, so yeah, because he goes around looking at what people are prepared to pay uh, pay pay on discogs and you know online markets and so forth. And so he had uh, he got a record called Purple Moonlight Pages, and he announced that the vinyl, a uh, double LP, was going to be $77. Because he just worked out that's what some people pay for those things. And, uh, and whenever anybody objected, which of course some people did, said, well, that's a bit much, whatever. He was quite prepared to face him off and say, you know, no, I did this for these reasons. You know, people pay this kind of sum of money. I don't expect everybody to pay it. But, yeah. you know, I have identified a kind of hardcore of my support who will pay this kind of thing. And um, it, just, it just made me think it was really interesting, you know. And I was thinking about um, how, how with anything, whether it's a record or a book or, or a magazine back in the day, you know, there was there was always hardcore who would pay pretty much anything for whatever it was. You know, and then there was a far softer outer area of people who might pay if it was, you know, competitively priced. And so everything everything grew to get that bigger market. And therefore the, the product, whether whatever it was, was it, whether it was a record or a magazine or a book or whatever, was compromised so, in order to get that wider market. Yeah, yeah. And so what this what this guy's doing, he's, he's just simply concentrating on the kind of hardcore inner core, really, isn't he? Because yeah, there was he, an artist called Hustle who put out 100 copies of his album Mailbox Money and charged $1,000 for each. That's quite and a lot. And he sold all of them. <laughs> now, that's a lot. Uh, obviously, that's a lot. But you could argue that a thousand dollars for uh, if there are only a hundred copies, that they might retain their value. But the thing about yeah, Rap Ferreira, yeah. like Rap Ferreira, is they, they can't possibly retain their value if there's a one thousand five hundred of them. Well, I, Do you know what I mean, and, and they're seventy-seven dollars each. I think it's unlikely. And so, what he's really doing is 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 kind of effectively getting a donation, isn't he, from the the artists, the the people who value him most. It's interesting. I was I, I, I was. In, Talking this week to James Clutton, friend of the pod, uh, who who lives near me, and James runs Opera Holland Park, yeah, which know, is yeah. the, the opera that takes place every summer in Holland Park, and usually performs in front of about a thousand people in an air-conditioned marquee erected on the front of Holland House and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, they can't do that this year. And so he has tried to keep it going in some way by having a small number of very select concerts, you know, where, where their audience 
it, they can do it with social distancing. They can have 200 people. And, uh, you know, and what you're offering is a far kind of purer experience. You know, you will get nearer the performer. Yeah, absolutely. But there will be less. There won't be kind of spectacular scenery or fabulous lighting or any of that kind yeah. of stuff. But if you like the music, if you're the kind of person who wants an evening of whatever it is, you know, Verdi or Stephen Sondheim or whatever, you will pay for that. And so, and so what he's found is that they can release those shows, only a small number of them, and they sell out really quickly. Yeah. And I wonder if this is what's going to happen as a result of all this, is it'll get a smaller number of people, numbers of more. people, paying, well, yeah, arguably a lot more for kind of purer experiences. Mind you, I suppose what happened in the last 20 years is people also paid more and more for more degraded experiences, as we were discussing Absolutely. recently. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the kind of high further part, and further back high in part treated like cattle, can't see anything, can't yeah, hear behind it. a pillar. Yeah, All yeah. that kind of stuff. But I, I just thought it was a really interesting thing, and it made me think about you know the, ma the magazine thing, that um, you know you still meet people who say, Oh, it's such a shame that Word went away and all that. So, I, I know well, do you remember the conversation we had about Word? I can remember it distinctly. Word was five quid. And we were thinking, well, you know, <clears throat> the ads are going down. We've got, to, we've got to compensate for that at some stage. So the idea was, why don't we double the price? Do you remember that? I mean, it was only just a, it was just a fanciful thought. It was gone in a minute. But we thought, why don't we charge £10 for Word? Because the people who pay £10 for it, they're not suffering. They, they they wouldn't do it or they wouldn't pay 10 pounds if they didn't think it was worth it. They really, really value it to that extent. And if you kept more than half the readers, you'd be making hay. We didn't do it, obviously. Well, yeah. <laughs> but that was the principle. I mean, I suppose the, there are the, yeah, there may have been, I suppose there are examples in the fashion magazine market, weren't there, in the last 10, 20 years, where people yeah. did that kind of thing. But I've got the feeling they're not doing it now. Those things have got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it it's it is just interesting that with everything, I think there's a hard market, and then there's a soft market around. Completely. You know, and uh, and I wonder if if people will end up appealing more to the hard market. I tell you what I was thinking about that was that uh, why wasn't there a kind of window on on album releases where if you want to hear it in the first six months, you can only buy the hard copy. It's not streamed. Oh, right. So that's the same as the hardback, softback format for books. Well, really. I suppose it is. Isn't it? I suppose it is. You know, the, it's a bit like the cinema release DVD. If, if, you, if you couldn't hear the Bob Dylan album, except by going and buying it, and it would cost you 30 quid or whatever. Yeah. Well, so clearly the hardcore Bob Dylan fans are going to do it. And people who are really attracted by the reviews or whatever, they're going to do it. And loads of people on the outside are going to think, well, I'll wait for it, you know, when it starts to pop up on, on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Uh, I don't need it that badly right now. So, you know. That makes why, huge it's, sense. It's just quite interesting the way, yeah, people, it is. the way people do these calculations. I get this. Whenever I have a book coming out, you know, you announce you've got a book coming out and it comes out in hardback. You'd always get somebody who get in touch and say, when's it coming out of paperback? I can't believe that because, you know, if you really wanted to read, I mean, hardbacks are instantly reduced to go to twelve ninety nine, aren't they? Well, no, not quite get, that much, but anyway. Not yeah. far off, you know. No, and so, and the, and the idea that the paperback's going to be about eight quid, you're simply saving the, the cost of one cup of coffee in a Starbucks, you know what I mean? To wait a year to read it. I just can't understand why people do that. They just don't like hardbacks. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, maybe I suppose that's possible. And uh, you know, the, the um, you know, when you consider, I always, the way I look at a book is, if you read it, you presumably enjoy it, and if you've read it and enjoyed it, you have had. How much enjoyment? I know that's the point. Hours you know, and hours of. Well, I worked it out, you know, because I I did the audio book of my new one. I I went to the studio a couple of weeks ago, and it takes three over three days to to record it. But yeah. broadly, it takes twenty four hours. Twenty four hours of sitting at a microphone, you know, saying it, reading it aloud, and so. If somebody's going to listen, if somebody's going to read it, it's going to take them longer than that, you know. But but let's say twenty four hours, and so but how spread, much entertainment spread it spread out over that? That's three weeks or whatever. Yeah. That's longer. That's a month probably in an average person's kind of reading life. So you've you've had effectively a month's worth of of entertainment from it, and so yeah. <laughs> You know, arguing about tiny questions of whether it's a 50p more or 50p less. I know, I know, I know. I mean, I know everybody wants value for money. Fair enough. But, you know, as soon as I, you know, if I paid a lot for something and it's, you know, well, if it, if it proves rubbish, you know, it, it's, um, that's just really bad luck, isn't it? You know, you're not going to feel any better. You know, you know, if you, if you read a book, you found it really tedious all the way through. Or a better example, you go and see a film and you think it's terrible and you sit there all the time, all the way, all the way through it, and it's damn near three hours long. And at the end of it, you think, well, never mind. I only paid £4.50 for it. You don't think like that, no, do you? No, you don't think like that. You think you that's three, three hours of my life I will never get back life. again. <laughs> that's the thing. I know. You're, you're, you're furious about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, and the other thing about a book is you've got you've paid for it and you can lend it to people and you can go and reread. Oh it. no, don't suggest people. Oh, no, that's, just, that's a very bad idea. No, you don't. You everybody goes out and buys their own copy. But, uh, but listen, if anybody wants to, if anybody wants to read a book and they can't afford it, well, public libraries are there for you know. It is. And, uh, yeah. you know, so so it, it is available. But uh, no, I, I just think it's interesting the way people we all make these kind of calculations. I know. I know. Of of value, you know. And uh, and I wonder if they, you know, they're being reviewed at the moment and people are maybe changing their minds about, about some of these things. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know what people think. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Dave, Remain in Love by Chris France, the memoir, which you've read and I've read. And uh, I, thought was, I thought it was really good, actually. And um, two things struck me. One, two, <laughs> just two, 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 just two of many. No, there were many things. Um, one was what a charmed life in every respect Chris France had. You know, the most rapid and untroubled ascent imaginable, really, for talking heads. And secondly, uh, well, also that the, the, the he and Tina are supreme, Tina Webb, supremely middle class, that incredibly comfortable background they come from. Tina's the daughter of a, of a, of a Navy vice admiral. His father was a colonel of the in the army. His mother was a Southern belle who thought Elvis was common. So they're kind of very, very middle class and, and uh, you know, and, and, and he's completely... Up, upper middle, to be upper honest. Upper middle class. Upper, upper middle. middle class. No, you're right. Upper middle class. And, uh, and, and not remotely embarrassed about, you know, Jim Morrison had lots of reasons to be embarrassed about the fact that his father was, I think, a vice admiral because this was during the Vietnam War. But, you know, but obviously Chris France is not that rebellious kind at all. And the, the 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 kind of 
makeup of the group really stand out when they're on the that bit where they're on the road with the Ramones in 1977 and the tour bus. And it's brilliant. The Ramones are quintessentially rock and roll. They claim they've never heard of salad. They don't know what it is. They sit in, rather artistically, they have to sit in, in exactly the same seats every day in the, in the tour bus. And they have these fairly prosaic conversations, you know. And there's the, uh, the talking heads in the back talking about um, fine cuisine and, and architecture and stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's such a charm life. Then they meet Lou Reed and he offers them a deal. Uh, a record contract. They meet Andy Warhol, and and, and, they, and also they they find out that if they'd signed the Lou Reed contract, they would have been bound to him for life, for life, and got would have taken them no for money. absolutely every penny. They would have been completely so so much for the fraternity of art. Rogered. No, no, but at least he offered him a deal. You know, Andy Warhol falls over them and makes them a, a radio ad. Um, the first demo they make, they get offered a, a recording deal and decide not to make an album until they're a four-piece band. So obviously it's all about kind of right place, right time. And the other thing that struck me was, was that it's his portrait of David Byrne. You yeah, know, it yeah. goes on and on about how the, clearly there cannot be, when David Byrne has read this book, there cannot be a talking head. It doesn't uh, seem reunion, like it. I don't think, because he really doesn't stop to see. And he sort of goes on about how, how this man cannot acknowledge where he stops and other people begin. And he paints a picture of this guy who is, who is just programmed. He's genuinely eccentric. He's completely attention-seeking. There's a scene where they go out, he introduces them to his parents and takes him out for a meal. And David Byrne spends the entire time loading up his knife with peas and rolling them into his mouth. Do you remember that? Oh, I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And he's, he's, Byrne is competitive, he's controlling, he makes Tina Weymouth cut her hair because he thinks she's too much of a kind of, getting too much visual attention, it's detracting from him. Um, you know, when they make uh, stop making sense, he tells them all they've got to turn up in really toned down <coughs> clothes, they're all going to wear toned down clothes. And then when he arrives, he's got the huge great white suit on. He's completely narcissistic, he's very jealous of the success of Tom Tom Club. And, and all of that stuff, and, and yet no, not one point does he acknowledge that actually that's what makes David Byrne really interesting? Yeah. Because people who write books, particularly in rhythm sections, often simply cannot see what the outside world sees of that group. There's a classic example from the inside. They've never actually stood in the audience. And There's watched, a you know? really classic example of this. If you can find a copy, read the autobiography of Noel Redding, the bass oh, right, player right. of the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it's on the first album, I think there's a Noel Redding song that they used to do early in the set, uh, early in their career. Yeah. Noel obviously made it part of the price of his being involved. Yeah, this is the my kind of Boris the Spider equivalent. Yeah. Well, Boris the Spider was really popular. But actually, anyway. It was very good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, he did this. And uh, it's either on the first album or second, I can't remember. And... Um, in his autobiography, he starts writing about how, well, Jimmy dropped my number from the set because it was going down too well. And you thought, oh, no. This I is don't think so. I don't <laughs> think that would, be, that would be what's going on. But that's the lens through which, you know, the bass player is looking at the world as he sees the guy at the front growing in stature Absolutely. And him diminishing at the same time, you know. But they simply can't acknowledge just how important that, you know, talking heads without David Byrne, unimaginable. 
Completely doesn't completely. even get started. I mean, there's a separate issue that the success of, of Tom Tom Club, obviously without David Byrne, but that's yeah. a completely different thing. You know, it's a totally different concept. It's a different kind of music. But if, focus, you, you know. if you've got a band and um, and and two members of the band are married to each other, you know, so so for a long time now, you know, how long has this been going on? A long oh, yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been brooding about David Byrne. 43 years. And stirring it up between each other. Every night <laughs> getting home from work. Going, another sake. thing he did. What's and he got and done now? And you, you, you see you, that thing he did with the peas and his knife? <laughs> you, go back, you go back and you reinterpret absolutely everything that happened you in your you history would. in the light of it, of it being his connivance yeah, yeah, yeah. in, 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 in you know, bringing you down. That's yeah. just what people do, isn't it? You know, it is. And it's it's bad enough if it's one member of a group, but if it's one member, you know, husband or wife, you know, that must, they just think every night over dinner they must be saying, "Do you remember that game?" <laughs> you know, in Edinburgh in 1982, Absolutely. he only went and did that. <laughs> Well, he, he the had all there the in a cab that... with him, and and the Talking Heads, uh, the Tom Tom Club's record just come out, and it's announced on the radio that it's, it's doing fantastically. It's a big hit single, and it's selling all over the world. And they're in this cab with David Byrne, and David Byrne's very very quiet about it, and doesn't make any comment at all. And they kind of have a go about how competitive he is. I don't blame him for being competitive, actually. Do you? No, no, no. no I mean, I think that's the way it is. It's, you know, he could have he could have possibly had the generosity to congratulate them, even if he didn't mean it. But I mean, you've, unless you're completely competitive and to some extent narcissistic, you're never going to be that successful a frontman. Yeah, a fact. but also it, it goes back to this lens. If you've decided that he's ungrateful, everything that you're going to, you'll interpret everything as being a sign of his ingratitude. Absolutely. It's just the thing you do. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking to the talking heads, I was, um, I was just looking at, we were talking about the talking heads and I was digging out an old book called Perfecting Sound per- Forever, the story of recorded music by Greg Milner. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not that old. It's a few years old. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a kind of book that absolutely fascinates me because it's just about how people actually make records. Now, the, the, you know, the, the ways of making records have changed over the years and aren't always, they don't always chime with the way that we, the public, think records are made. And they talk about the first Talking Heads album i've got it here actually and uh, and the 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 book interviews tony bongiovi who was the guy who started the studio that uh, that they recorded this album in and he he was involved in both this and the first ramones album and he's quite controversial in the book about talking about how much was done after the bands had finished and uh, you know that the, by which uh, he means completely re-recording. Well, I basically who, who, who knows? Yeah. But he claims that you know Bob Babbitt, the, the Motown bass player, was brought in on the Talking Heads record. I don't, I don't know if any of that's if any of that's quite exactly true or the way we think of it. But and it just made me think about this whole business of how kind of senior pros are brought in on records all the time and their contribution is very often minimized by the artists and and the, the you know the 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 seasoned pro is not in a position to go on about it and it's not in their professional interest to say oh i played that bit i invented that bit whatever but i think it's highly likely 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But they did an awful lot more than people than people let on. And it's funny, I was, uh, I was talking about, I was reading uh, Frank Zappa. Uh, book the other day where he, he just talked about that whole business of, uh, you know, in the mid 60s, how they made a kind of Johnny Rivers record or, you know, any kind of standard pop record in the mid 60s is you get the band in to play it and then you get listening in the control booth proper musicians who would then go in and say, well, it might be better if you just played it a little bit like this or a little bit like that. And they either played along with the musicians or they redid parts after the musicians had gone. And uh, this is why, you know, you, you ended up with stuff that, that was fit to be played on the radio because you have to have a certain amount of kind of polish, don't you? Yeah. Things to work on the radio. And he, Tony Bongiovi talks about in this book, he talks about on the Ramones, you know, first record and Sheena is a punk rocker and all these kind of things. You know, these were, these were records that sounded great on the radio. And he basically said, if you took a standard band whose who's playing was as rudimentary as the Ramones and just recorded them as is, it wouldn't sound good enough to be played on the radio. Whereas if you did something with it, if you goosed it in some way, you can make it good enough to play on the radio. I wonder how the, the individual musicians would feel about that. It's a bit like Hey Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds, which was, I think, recorded by the Wrecking Crew, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Jim McGuire and so, Roger McGuire, he's the only one on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did the others feel? My feeling is that if no one else knew about that, which they wouldn't have done for years, it didn't matter. It made you look good. And also it got you a hit single. Which would you rather have, a hit single? Oh, you know, no hit uh, single. <laughs> And uh, but but deep down in your heart of hearts, you would be slightly mortified that you were you were edited out of uh, out of the um, out of the equation. I suppose I don't know. It's interesting because I was talking I was talking to somebody the other day about you know my my favourite pop fact of the last few years, which I think I'm sure we've discussed on podcasts in the past, is that you you never get over. I read this in Kenneth Womack's book about uh, George Martin. Kenneth Womack, who we're talking to next week for yeah, about, about his, about his yeah. book about John Lennon. And, uh, and, 
I never got over learning that there are bongos on a hard day's night. <laughs> you know, can you hear them? Oh, you can hear them. Once you're told that they're there, you can hear them. Go away and listen to Hard Day's Night. You'll hear bongos. And they were suggested by George Martin because he just felt it needed a bit of extra kind of um, extra tension in it. And yeah. they really do supply it. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, all those little touches, which in George Martin's case, nobody said, oh, the Beatles records are played by session men because he was the producer. He was, he was this guy in a white shirt and tie who came down and played the, you know, play the electric harpsichord occasionally or yeah. whatever, you know. But all those little touches were absolutely crucial to making the Beatles records as good as they were. And, uh, and the Beatles didn't complain about it. And, uh, and it's also just a natural thing, isn't it? If you're doing anything, if you're doing telly or you're doing a book or you're doing anything, there comes a point where you engage the cooperation of somebody who knows more about it than you do. It's just one of those things. And you, you don't go, all right, go away now. I'll do it on my own. You're quite, you're quite happy to take their help, aren't you? You know, yes. Yeah. But also, making a pop record, it's a cooperative business, isn't it? It's an industrial business. In, well, in, the Wrecking Crew, no better example of an yeah. industrial business. There was a great a quote from the late uh, Bruce Gary, who was the drummer in The Knack, who said he was disappointed to find out that his 10 favourite drummers were Hal Blaine. Because <laughs> his ten favourite tracks were we discovered later were all recorded by the, by the wrecking crew. He kept thinking, "Well, that's a great drummer on this." Yeah. Oh, the Birds drummer is amazing. Whatever you know. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's the way it is, uh, and I suppose will continue to be. You know, but 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 bands want to present themselves as the kind of authentic author of absolutely every noise that's on the record. The furthest extension of all this was the Frankie Goes to Hollywood record. Do you remember that? The first right. album? Yeah where, yeah. where only Holly Johnson appears on it, obviously. The other four don't appear. And I'm pretty sure Trevor Horn got in members of Yes and the Blockheads to record it. I think <laughs> so. Do. He would and, do. and what he did was he recorded the four boys, the other four boys, jumping into a swimming pool. Uh, and then as a sound sample, put that on the album. So somewhere they do actually appear, but only <laughs> jumping into a swimming pool. That's sweet, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it Trevor Horn said that when Martin Fry played the, the, the original ABC um, Lexicon of Love demos, he said, well, we, that's great, but we can do it again properly, you know. And, and, and he then went away and they did it again very properly. And I'm sure, you know, Trevor Horn was the person who made the decisions about what was proper and what wasn't. Completely. Because if you're sitting in a studio with Trevor Horn, like if you're making a movie with I don't know who, and they know more about it than you do, you're gonna if you're gonna sense, you're gonna say, all right, fine. You're not gonna say do it my way. <laughs> well, not unless you're singularly stupid, I would have thought. Uh, which is, you know, talking of which, I see um Jim Core and Jedward are all engaged right. are engaged in a debate. About the uh, Jim Core, the man once famously described as the only man in Europe who doesn't fancy the cause. Very good. Which I thought was good. Very what's, good. What's he gone and done? Is he, no, he's he's fairly um, he's, given he's a, to uh, eccentric um, sound offs on Twitter. <laughs> he's probably sitting at home not doing my very much. Um, but there's uh, apparently he's very anti-mask, and Jedward a pro-mask. So I thought, you know, what have we come to when the kind of major the major, you know, um, philosophical battle in popular music is being waged between Jim Core 
and Jedward. And the idea there that if, if Jed would say that we should wear masks, how many of us are meeting going to think that's what we must do? <laughs> Good God. <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, they, they are pop stars and they're, you know, their word move, moves millions. But uh, we shall see. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. There's a huge, great feature in the New York Times magazine about a pair of father and son British orthodontists who have come up with some theory that I don't pretend to properly understand about British teeth. And oh, I saw this. I've read it, yeah. Facial They say shapes. They say that the crooked teeth change the shape of the bone structure of the face and make people look less good-looking. That's the thing, isn't it? And it's they, all about the physiognomy, isn't it? And they have been taken up by um, the incels on the internet. And, of course, you know what incel means, don't you, Mark? Go on. It means involuntary celibate. Okay. Oh, okay. It means... This is new to me. Young men who can't get any. (laughs) Okay. Otherwise known in in times past as young men. Okay, that's... Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's just... It's the idea that what we all were when we were kind of 14, 15, yeah, yeah, yeah. now is now a kind of a press minority. Yeah. You know, you know that, that deserves representation on the internet or whatever. But I just, it made me think about the American utter obsession with British teeth, uh, you know, which British people hardly ever talk about at all. But, no, but in terms of the old... The 1960s pop star invasion. George Harrison, David Bowie, Keith Richards. I mean, David Bowie. I mean, who is it? Was it Frank Muir who had very strange gaps in his teeth? So always said he could had eaten apple through a tennis racket. I think <laughs> you could probably, probably say the same about some of those guys. Well, Keith Richards yeah. writes about, writes about it in his uh, yes, he in did, his autobiography it? quite extensively. Uh, and it clearly is is a wound that hasn't healed with him, because he's he's a bit older than I am, and um, you know he. But he remembers going to the dentist in the fifties was something you absolutely went to any lens to avoid, because most dentists in that time army remember, trained, yeah, they were army trained. Yeah, I.e., they, they were they were trained. They were not trained. You know, these were people... Put a knee against your chin to get extra leverage and then get a mole wrench out, you know. Do you remember remember the dentist in the 60s? Do you remember the gas? You'd have gas? Well, you could have... I can remember sitting in a dentist chair and I must have been about six years old or something. My mother was in there with me. And the dentist saying... I can remember the... It was the first time I'd heard the word. He said... Does he want cocaine? Oh, that's right. Yeah, they did. Literally, they would ask that question. Because <coughs> yeah. that meant that they give the in- injection to, you know, which was cocaine. That was the first yeah. time I knew of cocaine. And uh, Keith Richards, it haunted him for years. And that's why he's one of those people who just never went to the dentist at all. Just left it alone. Did the press comment on his teeth? Because Bowie, with Bowie, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing, wasn't it? Because if you look at those Bowie albums, he never smiles 
until the smiled. 1990s. He never he, smiled. <laughs> he kept the old mouth shut in photographs, didn't he? And when he had had his teeth done, and he had an amazing American tooth jobber, or what appears to be one strip of bridge work is kind of laid in, isn't it? Absolutely <laughs> perfect. And from that point onwards, he never stopped smiling. Every <laughs> single picture of him, you see him laughing and, you know... It, it kind of makes me laugh, you know, that people talk about David Bowie as the ultimate individual, you know? And it was good. As soon as he married a model... <laughs> you know, day one when you marry a model, she, model gets you in there and says, "All right, now let's have a look at you. If we can get that sorted, yeah. we can get that fixed. Yeah, that a little bit of work needs doing here. <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and so that's that's when he got the uh, that's when he got the teeth done. But uh, quite right, if you look at all these early uh, early and middle period and classic period album covers, they're all images of him that carefully avoid. Him showing his teeth, showing his teeth. because it, it, it just wouldn't have worked at all, and um, and of course I wrote about this in my book uh, that uh, Freddie Mercury had the most. Uh, I know he's born in Zanzibar and didn't come to Britain until he was a teenager, I think, or probably a bit before that. Uh, but he he you know ran away from the dentist as much as he could, and he had a very strange you know, uh, um, arrangement of teeth. There. So he, he had too many teeth at the back that pushed the ones at the front forward? That's what he had an overbite, didn't he? Uh, yeah, really pronounced overbite. Hence the moustache. But he, he, was also, he was also very worried about getting anything done about him in case it changed the way he sang, which has got a fair point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the story goes that uh, the reason Queen didn't appear on the Bill Grundy programme in 1977 uh, was that Freddie Mercury had finally decided that day to go to the dentist, and it was <laughs> which is a fantastic irony, isn't it? Because the group that they got on instead was the Sex Pistols, and Johnny Rotten was called Johnny Rotten because of his because absolutely of his terrible teeth. teeth. Which is, I know it's fantastic, isn't it? The idea that you embrace the teeth yeah. rather than rather than hide them, yeah, 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 yeah. About them. But uh, no, it's amazing how it, how it just continues to be a big thing and it's still a thing that the americans you know the average american chat show host still feels perfectly comfortable in making what is frankly a you know kind of rude and abusive references to to the teeth of people from england or whatever but known as it's known as english teeth isn't it? <laughs> and they just say it you know um which I, I, I don't think is really deserved, actually. No, but does it tell you something about the difference in the way American and English British audiences connect with people? I don't know. Because there's something about the British audience that want people to be real and unvarnished and approachable and possible to identify with. And there's something in the American culture that wants people to be sort of slightly fantasy, rather, rather perfect figures. Would that be fair to say? I suppose that might be true. Yeah. I I, I, I always used to think it with magazines. that If you looked at magazines, the time that that British magazines are most interested in stars, celebrities of any kind, is when they're first taking off, when they're still a bit like you and they've got all to play for, and and then when they're coming back down the other side. They've had the success and it's all gone a bit wrong and they've been returned to their kind of humble old selves, a little (laughs) bit wounded, a little bit wiser, a little bit sadder, and you can relate to them again. But that yeah. middle period, you've kind of lost them. Whereas American magazines, the key period you're interested in is when they're absolutely cruising at that altitude, when they're the most successful. That's yeah, the big fantasy. That, I suppose that's true. But there might be something about it. I don't know. I remember interviewing Rod Stewart once, and he talked about, about 
you know, physical eccentricities because he had the nose and Elton had the, had the, had the, had the hair and Freddie had the teeth. And they were going to have a band, weren't they? They yeah. have a band called, called Nose, Hair and Teeth. Nose, Hair and Teeth. Yeah, I know. You can't imagine the same thing taking, same conversation taking place in, in the United States, can you? Not remotely. You can't see, you know, Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and you know, people like that getting together and discussing physical imperfections. Although Madonna, Actually, to be fair, does oh, have one. Madonna has a, a big gap in her front teeth, which she's never had fixed, and I rather admire her for it. Very interesting. I know we didn't talk about this uh, on the podcast. Oh, Hilary Mantel, 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 yeah. Mantel, Mantel, wrote a review. Wrote a review of uh, of a Madonna book in I can't remember London Review Books. I think recently a a kind of uh, she wrote this really good, really interesting review yeah. of uh, of a biography of Madonna and. Um, and uh, and she took issue with loads of loads of bits of it, but she the one thing that she really took issue with was the idea that Madonna was really attractive, <laughs> and she said I can't remember the phrase she used used, but it was something like Madonna was the plain girl's revenge, which I thought was a really good idea. She was a girl who wasn't fabulously attractive or anything like that, wasn't fabulously tall or sylph like or anything, but just made herself into this kind of glamorous figure by sheer force of will. You know, she didn't have the equipment underneath, really, but she said, if I believe that I'm fabulous, if I believe I'm a sex bomb, I will eventually be a sex bomb, even though I'm just kind of a middling girl in my, in my class of the 16-year-olds in terms of attraction, attractiveness. I'm going to work really hard, so I'm going to be the most attractive person. I thought it was a really interesting point. Because really good point. Nowadays, I mean, people take Madonna on her own kind of estimation. Oh, she's fabulously glamorous and beautiful. Well, not compared to a lot of people. Not compared know. to a lot of people. I mean, a lot of it's, it, it's, uh, it's wardrobe, isn't it? You know, it it's is. props, you know, not being unkind at all, but I mean, the whole thing about her was just theatrics, wasn't it? It's just, yeah. uh, you know, spectacle. I suppose so. So uh, you you watched you watched the Laurel Canyon film? Oh yeah, I did. I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was really interesting. Actually, there was one there was one called Echo in the Canyon that came out about two years ago, directed by Andrew Slater. And the recent one is by a girl called uh, Alison Elwood, and it's a bit like you know those Ken Burns um, jazz documentaries. Yeah, you know, well, Ken Burns documentary where uh, he uses, yeah, he uses Civil stills. War. And, Civil War. Yeah. And he uses stills and tiny, tiny bits of, of uh, footage if they're available. But mostly does it with stills and voiceover, you know. And that's how she's made this uh, this film, which I thought was quite interesting, really, because all the people she's talked to, which is, you know, the birds and the mamas and the puppets and the Buffalo Springfield and members of love and stuff, you never see them in vision, which actually struck me as being quite attractive. Because if you're in your late 70s or whatever, and, and you know you're not going to appear this in a, is what in a they film, do. Yeah, but then that makes it. you far more keen to cooperate, actually. Doesn't it? No disrespect but, to anyone. But listen, there's there's a couple of other things that going on there, and that is the standard way that they make documentaries nowadays. Yeah, it's true. And if you go and look at the Maradona documentary, you're going to look at the Ed Senna documentary. You look, yeah. you look at, there's a really good Frank Sinatra two part All or Nothing at All. I think it's called. If you keep the talking heads out of shot, yeah, you don't date at all. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You, 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 you know, you don't see when the person in their life said this thing. And also, you don't have to go and interview them. 
you can go and find an old recording Precisely. of them talking and you Precisely. just match it with your pictures. Because they bring in, she brings in various people who are no longer alive, actually. Yeah. And so therefore, and you don't immediately think, um, how did that happen? You know, and also when you see people, you've got that constant thing of being reminded. If you see Stephen Stills, you're constantly reminded what Stephen Stills used to look like and how much he might have changed. And that's distracting. David yeah, Crosby, you don't need to see that. Yeah. It's nothing to do with the story. No, uh, but I thought it's really interesting. I thought there were so many interesting things. One was what key, what a key part of the equation the mamas and the papas are. Yeah. You know, who seem to be emblematic of that whole movement. You know, their male female lineup, their harmonies, the folk, jazz, you know, blues, rock and roll, the Monterey Pop Festival that they kind of kickstarted. You know, the song that seemed to capture the whole spirit of it, California Dreaming, and the Fleetwood Mac-like love tangles. Now, do you, do you know you up to speak? I'm sure you are. Michelle Phillips went off and had a love affair with Denny Doherty. Yeah. Uh, Mama Cass was in love with Denny Doherty. Uh, Michelle Phillips was married to John Phillips. And then she went off and had a love affair with Gene Clark. It's so of the time. It's Fleetwood Mac, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Extraordinary. There's a... various, various other things that love. Love couldn't play the Southern States because of the racial mix-up of their makeup of their, of their lineup, which I, I was unaware of that. Mm. And, and I was unaware that they got... Um, uh, Jack Holzman in to see the doors. You probably know this story and said, you've got to sign this band. They partly wanted him to sign the band to get themselves off Electra. But what happened was it completely scuppered their, their career. And Holzman signed the doors and then took all the promotional money that he would have then funneled into, to some extent, into love and shoved it into the doors. So that completely uh, upended their, their prospects too. Um, incre- the impact of Joni Mitchell, fantastic. But Jerry also, Mitchell arrives completely differently. Sorry, what are you going to say? But also, the, I don't think there's another example in popular music of, of, a, of a kind of movement so identified with such a tiny little place. Yeah. You know, Laurel Canyon. I, I, I written about this recently in my book uh, when Graham Nash goes with the Hollies in I don't know, 67, 68, something like that. He meets Mama Cass. And Mama Cass picks him up at the hotel and drives him in an uh, open-topped car. You imagine this. This is somebody, right. from, somebody from Manchester. This is somebody from Salford this happens to. And she picks him up. And introduces and she, him. She drives him up, up into the canyon. And you've been up Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And, you know, and, even, you know, and I went there in the 70s when it was slightly less gated community than it is now. But there's these fantastic houses up on stilts, these wooden houses with these kind of balconies overlooking, uh, you know, the, the winding road up there. And she drove him up there in, in, to David Crosby's place. And so David Crosby's out on the patio with the guitar and looking the past and rolls him the biggest joint anybody had ever been rolled. And, uh, and Graham Nash, you know... Who had never hey, smoked dope at that never point smoked, in his life. Never smoked dope. Right. Suddenly is in that place with that view, with those people, and thinks, "This is I'm the never life. going home. This is the life I want to live forevermore." Yeah, forever and also, more. and also, you can write songs about this place. Yeah, and that's the amazing thing about Laurel Canyon is the kind of we utterly forgive the kind of supposed self indulgence of it because we thought it fantastic that Joni Mitchell wrote a record called "Ladies of the Canyon," and it was all about her and her neighbours and the fabulous life that, that, that they led, that we would never lead at all. 
We thought that was absolutely We right. thought it was fine. We thought it was a classic fantasy. Yeah, yes. But Joni Mitchell, Mitchell changes the whole gear, I think. You know, she's, she's, you know, if you think how, from the very beginning, everything about her was different. The way she wrote songs, the way she wrote lyrics, the tunings of her guitar, everything, the way she looked, the, 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 the fact she was a solo artist, she had these hundreds and hundreds of songs, and they're all completely knocked out with her, aren't they? I mean, David Crosby yeah. never quite recovers from reading his. Graham Nash, I don't think has recovered to this day. No, I'm sure. I mean, they, they meet and then he play, He says, I'm, I'm a songwriter, you know, here's some of my stuff, and she then plays him 15 songs that she's written that are yet to come out, and he just, just thinks, oh, this is all over. I mean, can, you <laughs> imagine, can you imagine the ego it requires? Going back to our discussion of David Byrne. Yeah. The ego requires to go, here are 15 songs. <laughs> you know, you don't do two. You go, no, and here's another one. Oh, and you ought to hear this one and this one. Imagine doing that in front of a Actually, fellow it's a artist. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing to do. It is. Know. But it she, is. Clearly, she clearly just had that kind of insane confidence, well, well-founded confidence. Absolutely. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Film. Lovely footage of, of, of Neil Young on Canadian TV. Very, very polite. Very eager to please. A little roll neck sweater. Keenly introducing all the members of Buffalo Springfield to the presenter. Oh, Stuff right. like that. You suddenly see the change in these people, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and I, thought, I thought it was great. I thought there's no bigger contrast to right now. You know, everything in the film is easy and it's solvent and it's optimistic and it's uncomplicated and it's, it's uncompetitive. And it's just, it's, it's really wonderful, sunny, fabulous little vista that you go and revisit. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was great, but you know, up till the point where they all wake up and start thinking about the outside world and how they ought to be writing songs about Vietnam and stuff. But it's brilliant. It's great escapist viewing. It's recommended highly. The Word Podcast: Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. Uh, this is your weekly reminder, if you're not already one of our Patreon supporters, that we'd very much like to see you add your name to the list and take advantage of the many special benefits uh, that flow to those people. Uh, including being in the room when we record further Crowdcast. Word in your ear recordings as we got coming up over the next week or so with uh, Kenneth Womack, his book about John Lennon, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, where we were talking to him from New York. And um, a week later, Justin Quirk, uh, his book, Nothing But a Good Time, which is about the uh, spectacular rise and fall of glam metal. Well, we'll be talking to him from somewhere else in London, I would imagine. Uh, other things, other things you can do is if you if you sign up to be an annual Patreon, uh, you can get a fifteen percent discount. And we also, at the top level of our Patreon supporters, we do offer the facility of of recording your own, visiting your own home for your own very special word in your attic, which is uh, something to celebrate your birthday as it comes round, but also other benefits like in taking part in our regular Friday night. Uh, do you know who it is yet? Quiz. Uh, the next one coming up next Friday. So all this and more can be yours. If you go and look on patreon.com slash word in your ear. So who's added their name? Uh, yeah, Mark? We, uh, we just, as I said, we just announced the annual patron opportunity and Robert Markwick has signed up. Bless him. Yeah, and we also work. have new uh, patrons, Mark Alexander, Gareth Moore, NJ Waite, and our 200th subscriber, 200th patron, Michael Holmes. Superb. Very good. Many good thanks work. to all of them. Many thanks. And we'll, uh, we'll see you in the next week. Cheers. See you. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 